Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. Delroy Lindo is a giant of American theater, film, and television. He debuted on Broadway in Athol Fugard's Master Harold and the Boys in 1982 and earned a Tony nomination for his role as Harold Loomis in August Wilson's Joe Turner's Come and Gone, directed by August Wilson. Delroy Lindo has carved an impressive career in film, appearing in such movies as Get Shorty and Cider House Rules, and in television where he's currently a regular on The Good Fight. He has appeared in four films directed by Spike Lee, Crooklyn, Malcolm X, Clockers, and the new Netflix film The Five Bloods. In the fall of 2008, he directed a production of Joe Turner's Come and Gone at Berkeley Rep. The interview originally aired on KPFA on November 14, 2008. Delroy Lindo, you worked on uh, Joe Turner's Come and Gone. Let's, I want to talk about the original production before we go into your production and about right. August Wilson in particular. How familiar were you with August Wilson at the time you worked on it the first time? Reasonably familiar. I actually met August in 1983 when I was touring with a play called Master Harold and the Boys. Myself and James Earl Jones were touring that play. We're doing a national tour, and one of the stops on that national tour was Minneapolis, St. Paul. We played the Guthrie Theater for a month. And during the opening night uh, reception for Master Harold and the Boys is when I first met August. He was living in Minneapolis at the time. We had met once again in uh, 1986, which is when I first started working on Joe Turner. That's when I was getting to know August. You did Loomis, the character of Loomis, which I is... I played Harold Loomis, correct. Which is kind of the central character. He's not the protagonist, but he's the well, central... He, no, he is the protagonist. You think? He, yes, he is the protagonist. Okay. Um, but in terms of who's central, Bynum, there's a character um, of Bynum who is, broadly speaking, his antagonist. Bynum is the character who principally causes Harold to undergo the, the change that he undergoes in the play. But all of the parts are wonderful parts in this play. Right. But certainly, Harold Loomis is the protagonist. When I use the term protagonist, I use that term to define or to explain that Harold Loomis is the character who undergoes the most profound change. And that makes him the protagonist. However... All of the characters in this in this play, to some degree, undergo some change or other, and certainly the the all of the goings on, the events in the play take place in the house that is run by Seth and Bertha, so that they are certainly very central to the um, unfolding of of the story. Well, in a, in a way, they're the characters that the audience is going to identify with, just because everybody comes into to them. them. That's fair enough. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, since Loomis is, is looms large over the play, what kind of direction, if any, did did Wilson give you about the character? How much how much input did he have? A lot, 
and very little. A lot in as much as he wrote the play. And so that was the you know template from which we were all working. However, at that time, August was working with the director, Lloyd Richards. And I don't know if you know who Lloyd was. Yeah. You know, a seminal figure in the American theater. He had been responsible for bringing A Raisin in the Sun to theaters and to Broadway and discovered August Wilson in 1983 uh, when Lloyd was running the um, uh, Eugene O'Neill Playwrights Conference. And August had submitted his play uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Lloyd had picked it up, had selected it to give it a summer reading at the new Gene O'Neill Playwrights Conference. It then went on to play in various theaters and ended up on Broadway in 1984. At that time, Lloyd Richards was very central to the development of August Wilson as a writer and equally, if not more central, to the presentations of these plays. And so virtually all of the information, virtually all of the communication that one had with the material, the play as actor, came through Lloyd. Lloyd was the director. Lloyd was very hands-on in terms of how the productions came together. One of the things that I do remember August telling me uh, when, when I was first rehearsing Joe Turner, was that the play was inspired by a Romare Bearden collage called uh, Milhan's Lunch Bucket. August told me that the story of how he had seen that painting and had been inspired, had been attracted to the central figure in that collage, which is a black man hunched over a table wearing a long black coat and a black hat. And that became the inspiration for Harold Loomis in this play. Um, the other thing that August told me directly, I asked August one time, where is um, Harold Loomis from? And August told me he's from Memphis. That single piece of information turned out to be very valuable for me because I ended up going to Memphis and, and, and doing some research in Memphis as I was um, preparing for the second production of Joe Turner's Come and Go On. And I just uh, gleaned a lot of very, very valuable information from that one piece of information that August gave me. Well, when you went to Memphis, what did you learn that helped you create the character? What happened when I went to Memphis was that um, I, I booked into this hotel downtown, in downtown Memphis, and just completely by, completely by coincidence, next door to the hotel that I was staying in was another hotel. And in the lobby of that hotel that was next door were two black women who ran tours of Memphis. They were not regular tours. They, they ran tours throughout Memphis to a lot of the out-of-the-way places. Yes, they took me to the Lorraine Motel, but they also took me to a slave quarters, the remnants of a slave shack. They drove me around in their car and showed me lots of parts of Memphis that I would not ordinarily have seen had I not connected with them. And one of the things that was small but really critical for me in terms of my development of the character was that we were riding around one afternoon and I have no idea where it meant we were actually outside of Memphis. We were riding on this dirt road and it was this red clay, this red dirt clay road and I, and I asked them to stop the car. I got out and I just wandered around for half hour, 45 minutes, getting my feet dirty in this red clay. You know, I'm of Jamaican extraction 
it reminded me of, of certain parts of uh, Jamaica, up in the hills of Jamaica. They had this similar red clay. That was important to me, that I had that experience. It personalized my relationship, to an extent, with the city of Memphis. Those kinds of things were all things that I eventually used as I was creating my character, creating the character of, of Harold Loomis. You've done this play a few times, then. I did the play um, four times prior to the Broadway production. So all in all, I acted in the play five times, including the fifth and final time, which was the Broadway production. Were you approached by Berkeley Rep then? How did that work? How did that work? I um, had directed a play called Blue Door at Berkeley Rep a year or so ago, and it had been very, very successful, both critically and commercially. Working on the play was a wonderful experience. It was incredibly gratifying that audiences came to Berkeley Rep to see the play and really responded very positively to it. As a result of the success of Blue Door, Tony Ticone, the artistic director of Berkeley Rep, came to me sometime after and said, you know, would you like to come back and do something else? And I said, yes. And he said, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd like to do Joe Turner's Come and Go On. When you come into it as the director and no longer an actor, it's probably exciting, of course, because you know the play so well. But at the same time, there must it was be some, extremely exciting. There must be like traps that you felt like you had to avoid too. No, this very well may be, um, you know, what do they say? Ignorance is bliss. Uh, maybe I just don't know any better. I am not and was not afraid. I was deeply concerned with presenting the play as fully, as deeply as I knew how, and. Consequently, I tried to be very careful in terms of the actors that I cast. But one of the traps with this play from a performing point of view, and, and I've said this to the actors, you know, we just opened last week, there are two things in particular. One, do not stop working. Once the play has opened and the audiences are, are coming in to the theater to watch the work, certainly we have done some really good work in the four-week rehearsal process up to the opening of the play but i'm urging all of the actors to continue working to continue investigating these, these characters to continue investigating the play because this is a great piece of work when i say great i'm not using that term colloquially i mean that literally this is great theater it is a big play and therefore requires of the actors that they keep mining the work because there's so much there. That's the first thing. The second thing that I've said to the actors is I'm urging the actors not to allow the audience to take the play from them. And what I mean by that is as audiences come to the plan, for instance, they start laughing at certain places. Sometimes they laugh in places where one might expect a laugh. Not infrequently, they laugh in places where the um, actors are not are not expecting the well, audience to laugh. There's the sequence toward the end of Act One involving the dance, and as an audience member, I don't know how to respond. That's fair enough. Yeah, that's that's really fair enough. It doesn't surprise me to hear you say that you don't know how to respond, and on some level, that's entirely appropriate, frankly. But what I would ask, and I'm not, I'm really not trying to put you on the spot right now. I'm, I'm genuinely interested in hearing the answer. Are you moved? Are you touched at all? I feel moved more in Act 2 as I learn what really has been going on. Right. At that right. point, I'm, I'm kind of shocked. I don't know how to respond. I don't know what I'm watching. I've never seen right. anything like there's a dance that has African roots that the turns... Juba. The Juba, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that turns into this epiphany for the character of Loomis. 
and he begins to see these City of Bones, which apparently appears in other Wilson works as well. One other that I'm aware of in Gem of the Ocean, in Gem of the Ocean he references, yeah. August references the City of Bones. This is actually not the City of Bones, though, uh, and I would caution you, even though bones are central to both images. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. In Gem of the Ocean is the City of Bones. In Joe Turner's Come and Gone, what Harold and Bynum reveal is a vision that involves bones walking on the water and bones that then become flesh. It's slightly but significantly different. However, to go back to your point of not really knowing how to respond, you're saying that you, you don't know what you're watching. You hadn't seen anything like that before. Right, yeah, yeah. And That's I, part of what makes this play great. I, I think the audience, the audience was like, you know, up until that, we're dealing with realism. And suddenly we have these images and the entire thing moves in a new direction. Right. And it's as if suddenly where's realism versus where's metaphor? We're thrown for a loop. And, and you know, you could see the head scratching when people walk out mm. stunned because, again, it, it's hard to process. Yeah. As director of the piece, that really doesn't bother me as long as people come back for the second act. And they did. What I can tell you from having performed that scene numerous times is that even though at the time that I was performing it, I could not necessarily have articulated to you what that was about. What happened for me as I worked on the play and as I, as I worked in such a way that the scene would have meaning for me, it became a deeply emotional experience and I was hoping, I hoped as performer, as I hope as director now, that there is some kind of visceral response from the audience. Because certainly that's what it became for me as, as actor, as I worked on these five productions. And certainly now all these years later as director, I now believe that I know what that scene is about and was able to articulate that to my actors. The, the play is this, it's a heightened reality. The language is heightened, not unlike Shakespeare. And certainly the play is not straight ahead realism, it's not. And that would tie in with the set design, which is real, but then there's this bizarre staircase. Is, is that something from the original or something that was incorporated? No, the steepness of the staircase that you're seeing in my production is a design choice, is a, is a specific creative choice from... Scott Bradley, the uh, set designer. The original, all the original productions, yes, there is a stairwell. There's a staircase that goes up, that leads up to the upper half of the, um, of the house. But the fact that in our production, it is as steep as it is. To be honest with you, it threw me a little when I saw it. Um, I had had a number of discussions with Scott about the, the set design. And Scott also worked on the original production of Joe Turner. When I met with Scott, and I was putting my design team together, and I met with Scott. Since the Broadway production, I believe Scott has worked on five or six productions of Joe Turner. So I asked him to bring some of his ideas that, from the various productions. That staircase, that was one of the, the elements that I liked. And I said, oh, I like that. I like that, and I like the front door. There was one of his renderings that he showed me. Had the, 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 I liked the way the front door was situated. I asked him to build around those things. 
However, I didn't really know that it would be that that steep. And I thought that being that steep, if it were that steep, that it would be a kind of a faux staircase, right? And that the actors would go up part of the way and then there'd be a a ledge and they could go off backstage. But no, it actually goes up as high as you see it and the actors are having to go up and down all of those stairs. And when I first saw it, I was a little concerned. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, when you're watching it, it feels that way too. But I'm thinking more in terms of it hits the audience in a strange way at first, yeah. but it, then it ties in with the heightened nature of That's the right. play itself. Right. So it, it kind of makes it a whole. That's right. That very well may be, and I'll have to ask Scott about this. I'm not sure if he did this intentionally or not, but that very well may be a manifestation of Scott having worked on the play as many times as he, as he has and him having that understanding when I really didn't necessarily not in that specific instance Delroy Lindo when you're working on a play like this and incorporating material you know you move on to the second act Mm. which has to bring it together did you find any difficulty in say coming back to realism no because I'm not making that distinction as director and neither my actors we're not making a distinction in terms of how we work on the material between how we work on each scene we are not making a distinction between that which is realism and that which is not. What we are doing is working on each scene as realistically as we can. Did the actor playing Loomis, did he seem to have any difficulty because the Loomis was directing him this time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think he did. And Tegel, if you hear this interview, we can we can talk. You know, Tegel had worked with me and for me on Blue Door, and Tegel is a brilliant actor. But I do remember that when I first met Tegel on Blue Door, he had mentioned to me that he and I had met in New York many years, uh, over 20 years ago, and that he had seen me play Harold Loomis on Broadway. One must have a certain, I don't know if trepidation is the word, but I think that it did weigh on him somewhat, the fact that his director is the person who who had... Um, I didn't originate the part, but I, I, I became very, very closely identified with this part. The answer to your question is yes, I think it did kind of weigh on him somewhat. Let's talk a little more broadly about the play and about Wilson. This is one of ten, and this was the second in the series. Do you know if Wilson knew that he'd be writing a cycle at the time he yes. wrote this? He yeah, was. That, was, that was always his intention, to write a ten-play cycle. That was always his intention. So the answer is yes. He, he knew exactly um, that he was writing a, a play for each decade of the African experience or African-American experience in this country. What is the Joe Turner element? Who is Joe Turner? Joe Turner... The man's real name was Joe Turney, and he's mentioned in a song by W.C. Handy. That song by W.C. Handy is is referenced in the program, uh, and it's sung. But in the play, Loomis mentions that Joe Turner was the brother of the governor of Tennessee at the time. Pete Turney, in our play, becomes Pete Turner. And it is factual. And because his brother was the governor... He had legal sanction, obviously. What he did was go around and kidnap black men and put them into servitude for uh, a number of years. And so, you know, August has taken a little bit of artistic or creative license with that to form one of the central elements in the play. In terms of my research, when I was preparing to direct this production, 
There's a, a book, and I do not remember the author's name, but the title of the book is Slavery by Any Other Name. And that book chronicles how up until the 40s, the 1940s in this country, black men were kidnapped and forced into labor. Arrested on trumped-up charges. On completely trumped-up charges and kept on trumped-up charges and, 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 and put to work illegally. The uh, tenth cycle play deals with uh, what's called the Great Migration, which is the blacks who were slaves coming north. I found a few quotes from Wilson. One is that he thought it was a mistake, and yet there's no alternative. You know, I think I know that statement has completely been taken out of context. I'm aware of the essay that's in the program. I will tell you that that is um, it's wrong-headed. I don't know what the original quote was from August, but the essay in the program, which speaks about black people having made a mistake moving from the from the south to the north, and that August in his plays is dealing with the punishment of the black people are, are having to undergo as a result of this mistake is completely wrong-headed. That's not how August was positioning these plays. That's completely wrong-headed. My sense is the positioning was the African-American experience is seen mostly through the eyes of people in Pittsburgh coming out of from different angles. Well, there's that, and certainly all of his plays are set in the Hill District of Pittsburgh. Many of the characters come out of this tradition, either they themselves have come out of this tradition coming from the south to the north, or they come from families that have done that. You know, that's just a, a socio-political or socio-geographical whatever fact of many black people in, in this country. Sure. But I don't feel um, that August is making some kind of an indictment of these people whatsoever. I found a, a Paris Review interview with him where he said he actually never did write or doesn't, obviously, this was a few years ago when he mm -hmm. was alive, but I don't write to affect social change, but all art is political in that it always serves someone's politics, right. is what he says. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 would, I would agree with that. And I would, I would also say that um, one can't write about a social condition without it having a political dynamic. That's an impossibility, it seems to me. What we know about August is that He's writing about um, people of African descent in this country who are in a social dynamic and in, some, in many instances in a social dilemma. One of the things that, that I, that I um, talk to the actors about in, in, in this production, and Joe Turner, August was a fight fan. He was a boxing fan, fan of boxing. And um, I said to the actors that that piece of August's character the fact that he was a fight fan, is present in this play in as much as all of the characters are fighting. They're all pugilists. They're all pugilists. All of them are all fighting against something, every single character. And that, for me, is a very, very rich concept and idea to explore. Again, arguably, one can say that Harold Loomis is the character who's fighting the most acutely, but every single, I believe that every single character in this play is fighting and pushing back against something, much as a boxer does. Well, that's also uh, when you take disparate characters and throw them into a particular kind of social setting, mm. each one has their own 
goals and their own, their own aims. What strikes me in this play, play is that it's clear what their goals and aims are. They're, they're pretty much delineated, so it becomes easier to watch them go at it. You know what each of them is thinking about at least some of the others. Right. So it's a very clear play in that sense. Good. I, I hadn't thought about it like thought about it like that, but that yeah, that makes that makes sense to me. And and also, despite the fact that this is you know a heightened reality, I really do want the play to be clear. One of the things that I remember from working on Broadway uh, in this play is that um, at the time it was the least successful commercially of August's works. We only lasted on on Broadway three months. Really? Yeah. Fences had run for almost a year. And in actuality, Joe Turner and Fences closed on the same day. We had our closing night party. What I recall from my experience performing the play, I mean, and I have always felt that one of the reasons that it did not do better on Broadway, even though it got extraordinary reviews and was a brilliant production, one of the things that's always occurred to me as to why it was not more successful commercially is that this is a a challenging play to watch from the standpoint that it's not a piece of work that one comes into the theater and can sit back and be entertained by. Audiences must be engaged, and on some level they, they have to be actively engaged. They have to make a, I don't know, commitment, if you will, to come in and engage with this work. And I think that Broadway audiences, certainly the Broadway audi- audience, as I remember it at that time, they didn't want to do that. I mean, they want to come and be entertained. And that's fair enough. I'm not criticizing that. Joe Turner's Come and Gone is not that kind of work. Have you seen all of the plays in, uh, no? in the canon? No, I have not. I have not seen Radio Golf, which was the last play I did not see Gem of the Ocean, although I, I'm familiar with Gem of the Ocean um, because I've, I've read it and I was working on it for a while. All but two have I seen. Well, when, when you look at all of them, how do you think they, they impact each other in terms of themes, in terms of ideas, in terms of what are you doing, or, or are they more distinct? I think that all of his plays, really, really broadly speaking, involve the search for identity that people of African descent and and the search for a place to be. I think that all of the plays thematically have that in common. I I think that Joe Turner most resonantly deals with the the question of identity. That play does it the most, most broadly, the most profoundly. August always said this was the most African of his plays, and I, and I, and I understand that. I feel that that's true. I think all of his plays have as a theme what it means for people of African descent in this country to be here and to be existing here and the sense of history that people of African descent are grappling with. Who are we in terms of where we came from and who are we now here on this new continent? I recently spoke with at the theater um, a group of docents. I gave a talk to the docents all very committed people. But the questions they were asking me, and I will say that none of them were offensive, none of the questions were offensive, they themselves spoke about the fact how little they knew about black people, how little they knew about black history. And, you know, I was sitting there interacting with these guys, and it occurred to me that there is still 
huge differences between what our black reality is and what the white reality is. And still, there are huge differences, which is partly what makes what happened last Tuesday such an extraordinary achievement because we have President-elect Obama who managed to bridge those chasms to the point where people have enough faith to go to a voting booth and, and vote for him. When I see that the films about the black experience outside of Spike Lee, I'm not seeing much. Well, hold on a second. I think that we do ourselves a disservice when we restrict ourselves to film because exactly, that's exactly the point. There's not that much, but there's plenty of scholarship. There's reams and reams and reams and reams and reams of scholarship so that anybody who is committed or makes a decision that they want to find out can do so. But it's very different when you're being hit with art because that's functioning on levels that's coming in through the back door, whether it be Joe Turner's Come and Gone, Top Dog, Underdog, whether it be Crooklyn or Malcolm X or, or most of the works that Lee has done. There are some others, other people who've done work too. That's hitting you in a different way than reading a book of scholarship. Y- yes, it is. The thing to understand about somebody like Spike is that That's a presentation of the black experience or life, the life of black people in this country through a particular prism. It's it's, it's through the prism of Spike's lens, you know, Spike's Spike's reality. Spike's, that's one look. You know, you mentioned top dog, underdog. Uh, Susan Laurie Parks, that's another lens. One of the deeply unfortunate things about popular entertainment and the presentation of black culture presented through the lens, you know, th- uh, through the lens of popular entertainment, is that it is inherently narrow. That's the problem that we tend to see in popular culture: the same kinds of images over and over and over again. And that is the tragedy of the limitation of popular culture, right, and yeah. leads to the kind of chasm that we're speaking right. about and the lack of understanding, frankly, the lack of exposure to the broader spectrum of what it means to be a black person in this country. And, and that's why, why something like Obama's election just you know, creates this giant bridge because suddenly we're all looking out in a different way. I hope that that's true. To state the obvious, yeah. whatever the practical realities of President-elect Obama's election being elected in this country will mean we won't know for four or eight years. We don't know how it will change the everyday reality of, of, of living in this country between black people and white people. However, what we, what we can say is that the fact of his election, the fact, just the mere fact of his election, has changed, certainly psychically, what the parameters now can be as it relates to what it means to be a black person in this country. And theoretically, and this is a stretch, but theoretically what it means for black and white communication in this country. How did it feel the next day for you putting on the play? Because that's when we saw it. That's when I saw it, the next day. I can't really um, articulate it. I mean, as it relates to the putting on of the play, what I was feeling, what I am feeling, is very, very difficult for me to put into words over and above my understanding 
that certainly there's been a paradigm shift. When I refer to a paradigm shift, I'm referring to a paradigm shift that has occurred on some psychic level. I don't know what the practical reality is going to be. I'm as curious as anybody to see what the next four, eight years will will yield as a result of, of a President Obama. And, and one is very, very aware after the euphoria has subsided, the real work begins. You know, I was, I was down in New Orleans. I was doing some relief work last year, and I, and I went to, um, I actually didn't go to New Orleans right after Hurricane Katrina. I, I, I couldn't get into New Orleans. I was in, um, uh, I went to Houston, uh, Jackson, Mississippi, doing uh, work around, around there. And I was aware at the time that all of the work that was being done, which was on many levels wonderful work and people were opening themselves up, but one was very, very aware that the real work was a year hence when Katrina is no longer a headline, right? And that's absolutely proven to be the case. And I would say similarly with President Obama that, that once the euphoria has subsided, now the nuts and bolts reality, A, of how to get this country you know, back on its feet, some kind of footing, and, 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 and B, how do you change you know, politics as usual? That's his mandate. And he's already started saying, look, this will take time. This will take time. Delroy Lindo, uh, in this entire conversation, we haven't really talked about your career, and we've pretty much run out of time. But That's not a problem. How seriously can an actor who mostly works on the stage, how seriously can you take film acting? I'm not sure I, I'll answer your question directly. I mean, the fact of the matter is, even though I started in the theater, I have made my living mostly since the early 1990s as a film actor. Frankly, I hope that that continues because it is the success in film that allows one to come back to the theater. But to try to answer your question more directly, yes, one can take film acting very seriously. They are very, very different forms, and that's the first thing that one has to understand. Now, the fact is, it's not a great leap to understand that because all you got to do is go on a film set and see how a film is put together, and you understand very quickly, in a heartbeat, how different these processes are. But in terms of the finished product, nothing replaces the immediacy of theater. Nothing, especially when one is working on an extraordinary piece of theater such as Joe Turner, and one can feel and commune with the audience response. Nothing beats that, but I'll tell you what, film is such an extraordinarily powerful medium and certainly has its own magic. If one is able to divorce oneself from the politics of film, and the politics of an institution like Hollywood. And, and, you know, and there, there, there's, there's some really funky politics, no question. However, in terms of the making of film, the making of film, uh, and especially if one gets to work on a good film, a film that audiences respond to, that absolutely has its own magic. Well, when you're looking at your own career, um, I mean, you mentioned Get Shorty. I mean, obviously, it's a fun movie, but, but when I'm thinking of you know, work. I'm thinking of things like the work you did with, say, Spike Lee or the film version of The Exonerated. 
I mentioned Get Shorty. I, I was halfway being facetious, but the reason that I mention it is because one of the things that I'm really proud of in my work in film is that I've really gotten to do a range of things. And the films have different audiences, different demographics. On some level, the demographic for Get Shorty is different from the demographic for Romeo Must Die, for instance. Um, both very popular films in their right. own genres, but very, very different demographics. Um, th that's really the only reason that I mention those films. But I'm hugely proud of my work with Spike, Spike Lee in those three films, uh, both the film and the play of The Exonerated, which I did. Of course, y you know, you clearly are somebody who responds to work that has some kind of a sociopolitical um, dynamic, and that's, that's fair enough. For me, of course, that work, those kinds of, of works mean a great deal to me. And that's when, as an actor, I feel like I'm, I'm really doing my job in, in terms of uh, not only communicating with an audience, but communicating around work that has social value, social and political value. But the craft of acting, it sounds so precious. And, and, but you know, I, I just want to be a good actor, man. I, I just wanna, I wanna, um, I want to continue to take the craft seriously in the best sense of the word, best sense of the term and do good work and wherever that work comes from That's let it, it come well what are you planning on now i have no idea what i'm doing next i've been offered a film for, for next year for early next year um i hope it works out right now we are mired in uh you know um we can't reach an agreement about t contractual terms so i don't know if it's going to happen or not and i purchased the rights to a book um, a few months ago, and I am in the process of um, adapting that book into a screenplay. Do you have any interest in uh, directing film? Absolutely. I absolutely want to direct film. There's one piece of work that I, I have my eye on that I, I very much wanted to direct. So the answer is yes, I very, very much uh, want to direct film. And I, I feel that my work as a theater director, it, it's all part of a continuum. And that... Um, out of my work in theater, I'll continue to work in theater as a director and maybe as an actor also, but that certainly it will evolve into a directing film. You've been listening to a November 2008 interview with actor and director Delroy Lindo, recorded while he was directing August Wilson's play, Joe Turner's Come and Gone at Berkeley Rep. Delroy Lindo can currently be seen on television in the series The Good Fight, and in Spike Lee's latest film, The Five Bloods, which is now on Netflix. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. <laughs>